Hi, and welcome to another week of Amateur Activist. Um, this week, I'm joined for the first time, really, by a complete stranger, someone that I um, have never met before or have kind of had an um, intro meeting with. And so I'm really excited to introduce you guys to uh, Kate Boyd. How are you, Kate? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. So because you're kind of, you're the first, uh, my first guest that I haven't actually met previously, could you um, please tell me and anyone else listening um, who you are? Who is Kate Boyd? Yeah. So um, by day, I'm a communications professional. I do uh, communications work for an events arm of a university. Um, and by later in the day, I go to seminary. Um, and then, you know, later in the day, <laughs> I hang out online. And I really just love creating a space for people who are, um, I wouldn't say, I feel like deconstructing is sort of like a strong word. And for me, people tend to be sort of on the upswing of like reconstructing um, but just sort of like exploring their faith, figuring out where they stand and figuring out, um, finding their feet again, um, and figuring out what that looks like moving forward in their life. Um, I sort of like come alongside them and give them some tools and reframing things to help them build that back up. So, which I've loved, I've loved following you for the last few months and, you've kind of from afar have come alongside me and done that exact thing. But I guess, could you explain a little bit about how you got there? Did you go through, um, was there a period where you had to, I know you use the word, or I've seen you use the word untangle instead of like deconstruct, but how did you get to this point where now you're coming alongside people on the upswing of reconstruction? Um, yeah. Like, how did you get? Yeah. Um, so I would say the process of really examining my faith more closely, um, which a lot of people would call their process of deconstruction. I don't use I feel like, like I said, I feel like that word's a little strong for what I did. Um, at least if you look at how it might be used in the mainstream. Um, so I consider what I did disentangling because, I had an opportunity. I used to work for a Christian missions agency that worked in um, unreached places and among restricted access nations and unreached people groups. And so um, part of my job was to travel and to see what life was like, what, what God was doing, what the church looked like in those places. And after meeting a lot of those people and just sort of like encountering their lives and their faith, and their churches and how they lived that out, I realized that a lot of things that I thought of as really necessary or essential or important um, were actually like cultural things mm. and not, you know, really specific Christian things. Um, though they're part of like our, you know, white American evangelical Christian subculture. Um, at least that's my background. So that's where that comes from for me. I realized that so much of that was that speaking and those sort of things that felt important and that dominated instead of, um, you know, some of the other things that are more core to Christianity. And so, um, 
it really forced me to examine a lot of things like, and how I, and reorder my priorities. Mm. Um, and then, you know, also take a really close look at my faith and how I live it out and what, um, that means for a lot of different areas of my life. And that started probably almost a decade ago. So this has been a really long process and I think it's a lifelong process. I think it's cyclical. I think it's something we do over and over again. And so, you know, over the last 10 years, I've been reshaping and removing and, you know, reconstructing things into a faith that um, uh, now aligns like with who I am, who I want to be and what I believe Christianity is about. And so um, with that, you know, I've, I've gotten a bunch of tools and I've used a bunch of different things and thought through a bunch of different things. And now I'm in seminary and have more tools to give people or more ways of looking at things. And so, um, I, that's sort of how I, and so whenever people started talking about the process of deconstruction, um, which I think is, is really great. Cause when I was going through it, it was very isolating and nobody was talking about doing it and there wasn't like a vocabulary for it. But I think a lot of people were going through the same thing. Um, I sort of, you know, I recognized that and was like, wow, actually, you know, this is something that's been happening, not just now, but all throughout Christian history. And maybe, you know, someone needs to be here to say it's okay to not have it figured out and it's okay to start exploring that. Um, and it's okay to hold some things important and some things not important. Um, and it's okay to hold like this end of the world together and this end of the world together and navigate this like tension instead of like settling for simplicity and certainty on some things. And so I just sort of, I wanted to be the person that I wish I had when I was going through it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of like what started the whole thing was just, I understand, I know how people are feeling cause I've been there. Maybe I'm there now. Um, I've definitely had sort of like resurgences of it over the last few years. And so how, how could I come along and help people? Because I know that they're sort of going through the same thing that I went through. Which is, I mean, as I'm 22 and, um, a lot of my friends, you know, we're in our mid twenties and we're in this, um, which I think is why I kind of gravitated towards, we're in this middle ground of like, <laughs> and I'm in Sydney, Australia. So I'm obviously grew up in the evangelical American context, but now in a completely different context. And there's so many of us who are like, does this ever end? Does this? And so it is very encouraging to see people who are willing to say, no, this is like lifelong and it doesn't need to happen every day for the rest of your life, but it does come back and things happen in um, the world or in you know, your personal faith that then bring up more stuff that you kind of need to re-examine and look at. Um, there's kind of a light at the, <laughs> at the end of the tunnel because right now in our twenties, it feels like it's the end of the world almost that like, this is never going to end <laughs> this yeah. and this questioning and this um, engaging with. Yeah. 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 So I, I first just want to like validate that. Cause I feel like it, that is very normal. And that is actually like a very normal sort of like 
time of your life to start that. You know, um, I feel like I sort of started that a little late. I think a lot of us sort of started it a little late because I was, I was really content with my, you know, simple, happy answers. Like I, and I knew all the right ones. And so that made me feel really good. Um, but then I realized that either the questions I was asking didn't matter or, (laughs) or that I didn't actually have the right answers, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, um, I, I applaud anybody who takes this on and I'm glad that people are doing it younger so they can continue to grow, um, into that and that they develop the tools. And I think you're right. I think, um, we are sinful people and we live in a world full of different things and we will constantly be, um, distracted or shaped by the things around us. And so, you know, that inevitably touches our faith that inevitably touches our beliefs, um, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. And so I, I think learning to be comfortable with examining yourself and becoming self-aware and, you know, being willing to let go of things, um, Mm. even when they are comfortable, like these are things you, these are skills you need for life. Um, but they're definitely skills that you need for faith. And so being able to like, look and start to, you know, figure out what is true and what is, you know, or like solid and, and for lack of a better term, Christian, because I know that a lot of people would define things differently, but Christian and what is culture, right? Like, as you figure that out and then, you know, what is okay for that to be cultural because it needs to be contextual and what amount of that like doesn't, and where do you order all of those? Like, these are things that we will constantly be juggling, right? Mm -hmm. Especially as your life changes and maybe, you know, you move different places or you have different seasons of different needs, or if you are married or if you like live with someone else, like there's a lot of different um, situations in where you're constantly having to reorder your priorities and the way you think. Um, and so that obviously has to happen in our spiritual life too. I think that's just a natural thing to do. And so you can arrive to a certain extent, right. To like certain convictions, but even being open to re-examine those. And even, you know, when we get new information, I mean, I think that's the biggest part for me is just realizing like now we have information that we didn't have before, whether that is like new scholarship or like new science or new experiences in our lives. And are we willing to then challenge what we've brought with us into those experiences or into that knowledge in that space with the new information? And I think that's just a process we will constantly be doing. Um, and that's what I think is healthy about it. And to be able to do that, I think has a level of maturity, um, that just sort of like accepting the simplicity doesn't. That's, um, this will be the last thing I say, cause I really, I could talk about this. This is one topic forever. Cause this is what my friends and I yeah. been talking about for years, but I think I had this like moment in my room during um, one of our lockdowns in um, Australia where I went, wait, I'm not like, this is just maturing in my faith. Like I'm 22 and I'm, I'm having, like, I'm being forced to kind of mature quite quickly in my faith because of whatever's happening. And I'm like, wait, this is just maturity. Like, and I kind of looked around my room and I was like, why is no one applauding me? Like, why is no one, <laughs> why is no one here to witness like, this? Yeah. Like, you know, I wanted to like, I wanted someone to just go, wait, like, no, this is good. This is good. And I'm like, wait a minute. 
much. Yeah. You said that exactly. Like it, it, there is a, a maturity needed, I guess, to, um, in a previous episode, we talked about how hard it is, how hard it can be to sit and look at all these things. And it's not just this easy thing that happens on a whim or happens accidentally. Like you do mm-hmm. kind of have to put yourself in these uncomfortable, um, situations to ask these uncomfortable questions um and then decide to uh engage with it and it does it does kind of require maturity um but anyways like I said I could talk about that for yeah I mean I could too so yeah and I think and I think it's helpful to frame it that way right like I think it um because then it becomes less scary for us and for the outsiders looking in going, what is happening? You're like, actually, I'm just sort of growing. This is what it looks like, you know? I love that. Um, I'm just going to quickly pull up your, um, your manifesto because I, I want to read just a couple lines, um, from it, uh, for those that don't know. Um, so Kate has, uh, it's called a manifesto for those of us with untidy faith. We believe in boundaries, not boxes. We love the gospel and stand for justice. We cling to God in faith, but create space for doubts. We believe in a God bigger than our brains. We believe the world is wider than our experiences. We are committed to God and his kingdom above any allegiance to country or institution. Jesus is our only celebrity. We believe that we belong together and we believe in the two greatest commandments. Um, which when, when I signed up to your new, your newsletter and got that email to me, I did sit with that for a good, like maybe 20, 30 minutes and just let that completely sink in and kind of, I wanted to wrestle with what I thought that meant for me and what that could look like for me. And so I wanted to ask, could you talk a little bit about where that came from or where that, uh, where you thought the gap was that you needed something like this, but also mm-hmm. where you, how you came to choose these specific things to add to them, to those of us with untidy faith. Yeah. So I think it all sort of like is, it sort of generates from the first one, right? That we believe in boundaries, not boxes. And I think as a Christian for me, at least in my Christian life, it is important um, to have a boundary, like, okay, maybe I'll back up. So what I was sort of realizing is that as I develop and as I grow and as I was untangling things that, you know, I didn't quite fit in any of the molds that were around me. You know, I was in an evangelical church. I attended mainline seminary, but I didn't fit neatly into any of those like categories, Um, you know, and people are constantly wanting me to go further on one side of the spectrum or the other on a lot of different issues um, or different, I don't know, phrases or the way I open things up. I mean, Uh, It's just one of those things that I think inevitably happens, especially as you're walking through. So I, I knew that from the outside, my faith doesn't fit in like a nice, neat little box. It doesn't look like I check all of, you know, the things on the checklist of one, of one denomination or another, or one, you know, group of people or another, um, mine 
feels a little bit more a la carte, more piecemeal, more like all you, well, not quite all you can eat buffet, but it's like pulling pieces apart. Right. And so I think it's important to know what Christianity is and to hold like certain things as true and important. Um, and those are what I would, what I call like Orthodox Christian beliefs, but really boil down for like the Nicene or Apostles Creed, right? The things that have been settled as true in Christianity for, you know, thousands of years that like sort of define historical Christianity from a, a doctrinal perspective. But I think on the other side of that, like we also have to live into the other part of the church's witness, which is how they practice. And as I sort of developed that applicational piece or how the practice happened, that's sort of where I realized that I didn't fit in any of the boxes given to me where those two things combined um, in quite the same way that I would have put them together. And so when I sat down to do this and I was realizing that people were starting, starting to resonate with some of the stuff I was sharing, I was like, what is it that I want to be about? What is it that sort of like people are telling me, how are we working through this? And I sort of wanted people to understand where I was and like what I stood for. Um, but also to give them something to latch onto, because I know I don't always have, like, it took me a really long time to figure out what I stood for, to figure out what I believed or have something to latch onto. Like I didn't have a nice, neat label for what I was. And so I made one. (laughs) And so these are the things that I'd sort of, that rose to the top for me as like important. So that if people stopped by, they would see that these are the things that are important to me that sort of define this space online that we're creating. Um, And, you know, this is sort of like the manifesto that I live by in my Christian life. And that there's going to be a lot of things that sort of like change on the outside of that, but I don't see these things changing. These are the things that sort of ground my faith. So everything else can be messy, but these are the things that, you know, I hold on to. So from that sort of boundaries, not boxes, this sort of came and I sort of like created my own box that just doesn't look quite like, I think it looks like a lot of other people's boxes. I just don't think, um, people had the words or the labels for them. And so, um, that's something that because I've been processing all of this for a long time, it's been helpful for me. And I think helpful for other people for me to put words down for what it is. So these are the things that I found to be really important to me. Um, and it seemed to resonate with a lot of people too. (laughs) It definitely has. And I think it's, I think that's the, one of the, um, one of the most difficult things for me, I guess, personally, I won't speak for anyone that I've talked to, but is finding the language for a lot of what I'm feeling or what I'm going through. And yeah, know you like, I know it's not new and that it's not like it's, um, I'm not pioneering anything, but it's like, I don't have in my little 22 years on this earth, I don't have the, the language for it. And so it's been very helpful, um, finding, um, people or movements that have found a way to um, embody what I'm feeling through language and words and going, that's it. Like that's how to figure out exactly (laughs) what I'm feeling, but you wrote it a decade ago or you wrote it five years ago before I even knew, like, it's just, that's what I'm finding so helpful. Um, So this, another, it's been another thing that I'm like, how? (laughs) 
did you mean? <laughs> I don't know you. It's, it's just been very, um, it's been both very healing and very crucial to like the journey of my deconstruction and I guess disentangling. And um, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. It's, it is really hard when you don't have language, like when you don't have a vocabulary and that other people all, and you don't have a common vocabulary with other people. And I think that's one thing that is sort of like broken down in a lot of these discussions is like, we're using words, but we're saying different things, right. Or we mean different things by the same words. And so, um, yeah, I think for me, this was, it was an exercise even for me to put down like what it was and just sort of like processing through. And so I'm really glad that it's giving people language. Cause that was part of the goal too, is like here, maybe we don't fit the other labels. Maybe we don't fit the other like manifestos or like confessions or like a bunch of stuff, but here, here we stand. Right. And we can, and maybe it looks crazy and messy to the rest of the world, but um, you know, this is what we're committed to, at least for now. And then we can move and we can grow and maybe that'll evolve and shift. But these sort of things felt like foundation convictions that then we could build upon. Um, or then we could at least know what's important and how we'll engage in stuff. And so I think it's been helpful. Um, it's been helpful for me to have that language like written down too, so that I, when I'm communicating, I'm like, look, have you seen this thing? Cause like maybe now we'll have a common vocabulary to talk about. Yeah. And, you know, I think that'll happen. That'll develop a little bit more over the next few years because so many people are finding language and are finding courage to talk about it. Cause it's a little more mainstream now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that will only be helpful in figuring all this out. Yeah, a thousand percent. Um, you've also, I wanted to, I guess you've coined this phrase, messy middle Christian. Um, and I, I want to know how you got to the, um, using words like, like messy and, um, uh, untidy faith and the disentangling, like, was it something that had already existed or was it, did it just make sense to what your experience was that you thought I'm just going to use these these words instead of maybe other words to describe my faith, who I am and the process that I'm going on, going through. Yeah. I think they existed, but in different realms. So I sort of like borrowed them <laughs> for this one. Um, and I mean, it sort of started, I, the first time I remember thinking about like untangling and I now use disentangling cause I like alliteration. And so deconstruction and disentangling and doubling down. Like I, so I sort of updated it for that, but like, I remember I was part of like an anti-racism thing and I was like realizing that I was, um, and so untangling is like the word that I used and had sort of maybe heard in some other places because I didn't realize how much of like, again, that like cultural versus like good and right. And just and so like figuring out what parts of my experience were my culture and what parts of it you know weren't and and so it really just sort of like it felt like untying knots you know something was all tangled up um it's silly but there's like 
when I was like in fifth grade, there was a teacher who read this book to us called Maniac McGee. And I don't even, I, it's probably, I don't even know. And I don't remember anything else about it, but it was like this kid who was really good at like untying knotted things. And so like, there was this big ball of like knotted shoelaces or something, and he was able to untangle them. And so like, that's always the image that's in my brain when I say that. And I literally, it was probably not even a very good book, but that's what I remember from it. Um, And then, yeah, I feel like messy middle. So I used to have um, a business that I ran entirely online and um, it was sort of like messy middle was sort of a phrase that people used whenever they were talking about like what it's like when you have finally sort of like found your feet in your business now you know where you're going and as you're pushing forward and you're fi- and you're still figuring things out like it it's messy behind the scenes even though it looks like good from the front and or it's you know messy as you're figuring out where you're going next and how you're getting there it's not quite like streamlined it's all just sort of like built weird and that's sort of like that same sort of like pressure and confusion and um you know, a little bit of confidence, but a lot of like doubt and, and figuring stuff out and building things and then tearing them back down and reworking them to where they actually work and, you know, just collecting information and working through things. So a lot of people, they called that their messy middle in business. And I was like, gosh, that's what this process feels like. Um, And so I'm sure it's used in a bunch of other places, but that's really where that came from. Um, in my life. And then untidy was just sort of, yeah, untidy faith became another way of expressing the same thing where you just sort of, it's not neat and doesn't have bows tied on top and it's not nicely wrapped. Um, you know, it's not all, not everything's put away. Um, but people are still welcome anyway. And how do we explore and how do we have, but we still have it, right? It may not have been neatly wrapped or put together already, but we have the gift in our hands. And so, um, yeah, just sort of jumping off of the wordplay of messy middle and then just those images of like it feeling very unkempt um, in your brain and in your faith. And when you're trying to figure out how do you even communicate about this, um, untidy and messy felt very apropos. (laughs) And it's so funny that words like that or sentiments like that actually feel so, um, so comforting on, it's like, oh yeah. Like it's when you walk into a friend's house, that's also kind of unkept and you're like, oh, I'm not the only one that doesn't like, hasn't kept up on like the lawn. It's like almost like an encouraging, like another feeling. Um, messy middle Christians, can you, um, explain a little bit about I guess who that encompasses or um, maybe that sounds a little bit too exclusive, but uh, like what, what does that, what is, what does it mean to be messy middle? Does it just mean like, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think it's um, it being in the messy middle is really about a space where there's a lot of tension, right. Or you're, you're holding a lot of things together or you're working through things and it's really hard. Um, so there's tension there and there's grace. The messy middle is like a space to figure things out and find your footing in your faith. Um, and again, it doesn't fit neatly into boxes. Um, 
but it's a space to love Jesus and the way of Jesus and figure out what that means, even if that looks different than what you were told or what you were shown. Um, and I would even say it's probably less of like a major theological difference than where people were. Um, it's more of like, I always talk about, you know, it's not really my theology that has changed that much. It's the application of it, right? It's the widening of some of that. Um, at least that's been for me. And so that's why that little justice piece is sort of in there. Um, so it's been figuring out what's Christ-like and what's culture and learning to like untangle them in order to have, you know, a faith that actually, um, or at least words or understanding what it is that I believe and then figuring out how I move in the world based on that. Um, so it includes all those values in the manifesto, but it's really a space about like holding certainty and doubt and faith and action together in tension with like love and grace so that we can like be disciples of Jesus, um, in a world and in a time and in, even in our own heads where it doesn't feel, uh, safe or, tidy or pretty, you know, just sort of like continuing to navigate through the mess, even if it's, um, yeah, navigating through, even though it's messy. You've kind of, you've mentioned it a few times now that like the tension between what's culture and I guess what, what is it, but how do you, how do you even begin to untell, like, untangle or identify what is cultural versus what is isn't versus or what is um christian i don't know if that would be the other side of that yeah i and i definitely don't think those are opposites by any means which is why it's hard for me sometimes to like use them together that way because it's not like a complete dichotomy there can be things that are cultural and christian and that's fine um but I would say like the biggest thing here is to widen your community to people or places that have diverse experiences. Because when you do that, when you're confronted with people who have experiences that are wildly different to yours, you realize then maybe there's something there that you thought was quote unquote Christian, but is actually like a cultural expression of something. Right. Um, and so like, for me, that looked like seeing how things were practiced around the world. And so it's a very like stark difference, um, jarring for me, but, um, I think that sort of exists in all sorts of, there are all sorts of subcultures within all of our nations. Um, and so like, how do people experience, the same thing or how do they view the same thing? And so like, for me, the biggest filter was like, if it's biblical, it must be global. So whatever timeless principle I come up with has to work in every kind of context, whether that's in different time or a different space. Right. And so, um, that doesn't mean that the application of that, like how it actually shows up will be the same, but it does mean that the principle or the theology behind it does need to be the same, right? And so that has been a huge filter for me because I I met, I have met people. And so now I'm like, would this thing 
you know, work in some way in this place for this person and in this place for this person. And so really, or even just building in those questions for yourself, like would it work for the poorest person in America? Would it work for someone in South Asia, rural South Asia? Would it work for people in Australia? Would it work, you know, like in all these different contexts, would it have worked in the early church times, you know, like what is the principle that you're upholding? And if that doesn't work in any kind of, in every kind of situation, um, with very few exceptions, then maybe it's not quite as like timeless or solid as a starting point. Maybe it is an applicational point for you in your context, And that's totally fine, but it's when we sort of like take our experiences in our context and we sort of force them on everybody else's context um, when it doesn't make sense to do it that way. Like an example, I was in, I was in a discussion group today and they were talking about um, uh, translating the Bible into a language that it hadn't been translated into before. And it was into a culture where they don't have bread bread doesn't exist for them. So how then do you take, I am the bread of life and like the breaking of bread and all of those metaphors or like real things and take the principle behind them, right? Which is about Jesus being sustenance for our lives and these like symbolic acts of, you know, feeding and sustaining and sacrifice, Um, how do you take that and translate that? Well, for them, it was the sweet potato. So you change it to a sweet potato. The principle is the same for us, right? What it means, the belief is the same, but you translate it differently because bread means nothing to those people, right? And so I think it's really, I think that's really what it kind of comes down to is learning to translate it into our context. But before we can translate, we have to know what it actually says, And so that means we have to examine that in ourselves and in scripture and in our communities um, so that we know then where we can compromise and contextualize and where we need to hold firm. Is there an example of something that wouldn't, that maybe we hold too tightly or too highly that doesn't end up being global that we've had to that you think that we maybe should uh, let go of or that you've seen in past conversations in seminary, something where you're Um, like, yeah, I have a couple of examples. Um, Maybe. Yeah. So we'll start with one of the things that changed for me was my, um, my stance on women in ministry, women leading in churches, um, which is controversial in some circles, not controversial at all in others. In mine, I was a hard complementarian. I was very hard line, like, nope, even though I was a woman with a teaching gift and a leading gift, I argued against myself being able to practice that in front of men, um, <clears throat> without their submission or permission or whatever. Um, and so, but I went overseas and what I learned is that in a lot of places, women are the first people to come to faith and it might be years, um, before a man comes to faith because the opinions of women aren't valued, right? Like they're, they are not the important people in a society and therefore it's usually mostly women and they're working on it together. And then eventually like a husband or somebody else comes to faith. Um, so like a really strict complementarian stance would then say, well, now that that man has come to faith, even though the women have been faithful for 10 years, he gets to lead 
but that doesn't make sense, right? Like it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't transfer. Um, so I think stuff like that sounds good in theory and it works in a place like here where we've had Christianity for a long time and we have tons of resources and we've given certain parts of the population access to that. So you can maybe finagle that and make it make sense here. Um, but it doesn't make total sense everywhere. And so for me, I then had to go back and go, huh, okay, well, that's what I think or thought. Um, how then does it get applied here? How does that look? Are they just an exception? But then it's like, that's the exception most of the world versus us. Like, no, we're actually the exception in that scenario. And so how do we make that work? Um, and so that's sort of like one of those things that I had to go back and re-examine and go, okay. And then even, and then when you start digging into scripture, there are, you know, you can look at it and see that, um, you know, that there are different viewpoints on that and there are different ways of interpreting that than the complementarian view and still be faithful, I believe. And so, um, I, I believe complementarians are, are hold their position in good faith. Um, but I believe I hold mine in good faith too. And so I think it's, imp so that was one sort of example where butting up against different cultures and different contexts, and then even realizing that, like that Christianity globally looks more like them than it looks like me. Um, made me sort of have to put that in perspective because now I'm not the arbiter of what actually like Christianity is around the world. If anything, I should be taking cues from where it is, you know, more prevalent than here. And so, um, that has, that was sort of like one example of a shift, I guess to, to wrap up this conversation, unless there's anything else you'd like to say, um, do you, it would be great if you could give an encouragement or a thought to um, people. My This is not a faith podcast, but because I am a Christian and um, it is in every part of my life, faith comes up a lot in some of my episodes and a lot of my episodes and will continue to come up. And so I know that a lot of people listening are um, also Christians or who are um, going through a faith faith questions and faith deconstruction and so forth. And I guess it would be great if you could encourage or have a thought to give to people listening who feel maybe a, a bit uh, discouraged on this journey or maybe just need a little bit more <laughs> Yeah. Our majority of my listeners are 20 to 30 year olds. And I think um, we, we do need a little <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, um, I always like to bring up the apostle Thomas at this point, because I think poor Thomas gets a bad rap, right? He is doubting Thomas forever. Um, and people sort of forget the bookends that went around like that moment of doubt, that time of doubt shortly before the time of doubt, before Jesus is delivered up to death you know, everyone else is trying to convince him to not go to Jerusalem because they know that he's going to be sought out and that people want to kill him. And Thomas is like, well, he wants to go. Let us go with him so that we can die too. 
That's Thomas before Jesus dies. Thomas after Jesus dies, just like everyone, they're locked in a room. They're sad. They're hiding from people. They just happen to see Jesus first. Thomas was out. Maybe he was running errands. Maybe he was checking on his family. I don't know, but he wasn't there. And so he shows up and they're like, you just missed it. It was the coolest thing ever. And he's like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, which, hey, is a fair reaction, right? Like I would probably do the same thing. And then lo and behold, Jesus comes to Thomas and he doesn't shame Thomas. He walks up to Thomas and he's like, you know what? Look, examine it. Look at my hand. Look at my side. You can see it. Check it out. Like it is me. I am alive. I am here. So he really just sort of met Thomas where he was and he let him take a good look if Thomas wanted to. And after that, Thomas was sure Thomas was one of the apostles that spread the gospel. You know, um, church tradition is that he took the gospel to India and that's why it sort of made its way to Asia was through partly through Thomas's work. And so I know that for me wrestling with doubt and working through the things, um, God has met me every step of the way and every conviction I hold now is more strong and more sure so that I have more confidence when I talk about my convictions. Um, and I'm able to hold them with more grace for other people with more humility, because I know what it looks like to wrestle through those things or how many different possibilities there can be. And I know how much I don't know. Um, but it doesn't keep me from, from running still. Right. And being sure and standing in those places. Um, and so I think that's, an important perspective to have too. like sure doubting Thomas, he was doubting for a moment. Um, and the poor guy is stuck with the label forever, but he did just as much as everybody else, you know, and he, and Jesus didn't, wasn't mad at him for doubting. And so Jesus isn't mad at you for doubting. He's there and he's willing to be examined by you. I think he holds up in my experience. He's held up. Um, a lot of things held up and the things that didn't weren't worth being there. And so I think we just have to, we have to be willing to examine. We have to be willing to let things go. Um, and it, it, and it is hard and it is painful and it is sad. There's a lot of grief in the process, but on the other side, there is also a lot of joy and a lot of sincerity and a lot of humility and a lot more confidence in the faith that you have. And in even the next time you encounter doubt, there's a lot more confidence and competence in ability to actually examine and keep going. And so I think it's really important to not get down on yourself because you're experiencing this. It is normal. It is healthy. Um, and you know, if it, if it works for an apostle, it can work for you too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate, for taking time out of your day to do this with me. Um, kind of out of nowhere and someone that you don't know, it really does mean a lot. And I'm, um, this genuinely was, it's Sunday here in Australia and I'm in an in-between with church and what I'm doing with that. And so this has just been a beautiful start to my Sunday, to my Sabbath. Um, and has been very, these conversations are genuinely so healing for me um, and are very helpful on this journey that I'm on. So. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.